Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And as usual, almost as usual, this is a Tuesday episode, so Hugo and I are here together. Uh, but slightly different game plan for today. Hugo, what's the plan? Our plan is so our friend Tom Tobin is joining us. Tom is um, a uh, sort of healthcare uh, investing expert, uh, runs a healthcare practice for a room called Hedgeye. Um, and we thought it might be nice to mix him into our Tuesday format and get him talking about sort of some of the trends he sees in the healthcare sector and what it sort of portends for the U.S. economy more broadly. But yeah. first, Bradley, yep. for, I also wait. I should also point out that we are back. Oh, we're back in, in the, the store, P, the yep. PNT uh, studio, which is. Pretty nice to be back here because we yeah. were doing the remote. No, and that it sucked. Kind of, I yeah. didn't like it at all. The, the, the sound wasn't good. So thank you for the listeners to kind of hanging through. Um, yeah, we are at PNT Network, 180 Orchard Street in Manhattan between Houston and Stanton, um, bookstore, podcast studio, event space. Please come on by. And also, um, I guess I should keep asking you guys to rate and review us. Uh, a lot of you have, and we appreciate that. Um, but obviously, the, the, the more the better. So more the merrier. All right, housekeeping out of the way. Housekeeping is out of the way. Um, we the thing I wanted to ask you about, which is like such an obvious question, but uh, uh, the Kevin McCarthy sort of speaker election was this huge soap opera. Um, the press had a field day, you know, it just became this big thing to shit all over the Republicans again about how chaotic and stupid they all are. Yeah. Um, should we have been paying attention at all? Does it matter? Does it have any real consequence going forward? Yeah, I mean, two, two, two things. One, and the, so much, I mean, zil, I mean, God knows how many words have been wasted and spilled on this McCarthy thing that uh, I'm, I'm not going to add too much to it. But but the two points, so one narrowly on the speaker thing itself is you're right. I'm not sure it matters all that much. It's, it was incredibly fun to watch. Did right? you have fun watching it? Was it yeah, like, yeah, I like chaos. That's why I'm a venture capitalist. Like, <laughs> I've blown shit up. Um, but, um, you know, at the same time, so so what will this House accomplish in the next two years? So they, they will have to do a couple of votes that are meaningful. They have to raise the debt ceiling. The right. markets are fucked up. That's always that. really fun, those news stories around the debt ceiling. Yeah, it's, it's always fascinating. Who, like... who, who, who would not want to spend 24-7 talking about debt ceilings? Um, and there's some spending bills. But overall, it's not like we have high hopes that this is the Congress that's going to solve climate or immigration or guns. They're not going to do anything, right? You have a, a Republican House that, that can't even get a majority of their own coalition. You have a Democratic Senate and White House. You know, is there a shot that some kind of issue like tech regulation is bipartisan enough to get something through? Yeah. If there's a major national crisis, could they work together? Yeah, of course they could. But, but absent that, I mean, what are we, by McCarthy not being able to become speaker soon enough, so what, we delayed Hunter Biden hearings by a week or two? Like, so fucking what? Like, the reality is having an inoperable House of Representatives wasn't all that different and maybe not even as bad as actually having an operable House of Representatives. So it, it just does tell you when, when you see all this and you're even able to ask yourself the question somewhat seriously, are we sure this isn't better? Um, that's a pretty bad sign. You mentioned tech regulation. So what is the game plan there in terms of any of the big, the the, the big 230 yeah. stuff? Or is, there, is it just all kind of just in the same limbo it's always been in? Yeah, or? pretty pretty much. But I, I do think that um, because this is an issue that has strong support, antitrust, 230, privacy, um, both on the far left and the far right, if if there if the everyone in Congress and the White House said shit, we got to look like we're doing something. We can't just be completely useless and fighting. Um, and I don't know if they'll reach that conclusion, but if they did, tech regulation becomes something they can do. But 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 more broadly, seriously, if you look at the papers today, um, Bolsonaro, right? You have all of his supporters storm the Wait, Capitol. Do you get the papers delivered? I know you get the post no, no, and, I, and I paper, just, but no, I just mean them on my phone or okay. my iPad. Um, 
So you have Bolsonaro supporters storming the Capitol in Brazil, basically kind of in a rerun of January 6th from two years ago, right? The Latin Americans, the, the South American uh, sort of police presence, boy, sure blows the shit out of our police presence. Do you see those cops in the pictures and stuff? Yeah, they're not fucking around. <laughs> um, so, look, you got that. You have McCarthy, which is the result of extremism in U.S. politics, right? And Trumpism to the point where it's gotten so amok that even Trump himself couldn't actually then bring people online to vote for McCarthy, right? Um, right. And then the third that happened this morning was just, you know, the Times, because they hate Israel and their self-hating Jews and whatever else, being up on Netanyahu and, and his his working with the far right there. But but he, here's the question. So, so you look at all this stuff, Brazil, our Congress, you know, stuff all over the world, and you say, the world order has fallen. There is no structure. We need to get back to a world where people respect institutions and society, right? Okay, that sounds perfectly right and logical. Right. How, however... So when do we mean when we say that? We, at least in my mind, I think we mean like at least in this country, the 1950s, right? Because things started getting chaotic in the 60s in Vietnam, and they've kind of been that way ever since. So, okay, let's take us back to 1953. Are you going to have a January 6th? No. Um, are you going to have the same kind of problems, you know, with extremism generally or picking a speaker or whatever else? No. But is that the world we want either? I mean, in 1953, blacks don't have many rights. Latinos have very few rights. Women, gays, like, you know, so we live in a world there where, yeah, there was definitely more order and more social structure, but in part because you had one group effectively imposing their will on everyone else. So to me, that's not the answer either, is going back, right? So the question is, if extremism and chaos is an answer, and if, you know, the old world order is not an answer, then what does that leave you with? It's, it's really the need for something new to emerge. And the question is, is there a center both in this country and generally across the world that believes in both equality and moderation, right? So, so their, their views would be, yes, everyone should have uh, equal rights under the law in, in, every, in every possible way. But at the same time, um, in order to run a society... You know, you, you need a mix of, of structure and rules and autonomy and freedom uh, of, you know, government programs and progressive ideals with the capitalism and business and everything else. Um, I still think that the majority of people, at least in this country, um, would be willing to support a society that function better than ours does now. It doesn't have the same level of extremism, but at the same time does not deny basic rights to people. But that's the same silent majority in a way that, you know, in a weird way that Nixon was kind of talking about in, in the 70s, which is like, how do you access those people? Because, yes, I do think that most people would say gays should be allowed to get married. Women should be allowed to have an abortion, at least in the first trimester or whatever it is. Um, you know, everyone should have equal, equal access to voting. But at the same time, um, they're not particularly engaged in the system, which is why the system the way it is. So look, mobile voting, the work we're doing, that might be a way to kind of draw this this group kind of out into the public and out of their shell. Um, but I think we've got to figure out societally what are other ways to really empower, one, define that the center really does believe both in equality and moderation. And if that's true... How do we empower them? How do we bring them out? Because otherwise, it seems like we're stuck between these two poles of either a structured society that uh, does not give people their rights, like China, 
or a unstructured society like we have now that just feels like total chaos. People and, storming the Capitol. Yeah, but we do time. have a president right now who does, on paper at least, embody a lot of the things you're talking about. Yeah, I think he does, but he's also old, right? right. So, And the good news is, I mean, look, so I, I look at my kids, I'm sure your kids, you know, I know your kids, um, they would certainly subscribe to a world of equality. Now, they're kids that go to a, you know, they live in Manhattan, so it's not really... <laughs> the real world. The real world. But I, I bet overall that Gen Z is, and Alpha, whatever, are, are more tolerant overall. So I, I think the right views are there. Um, but I, I do think that for as long as all we do is sort of the lazy thing, which is what the media tends to do, because they're generally pretty lazy, like most people, um, if all we do is just point to the extremes because it's a lot easier than having to actually dig in and figure out what people really think and see, you know, we're just going to be ping-ponging in this mess over and over again, and we're only going to get out of it um, if we can find a way to really embolden the center. Okay, so as Hugo mentioned earlier, um, our mutual very good friend Tom Tobin is here with us. Tom, as Hugo mentioned, is a healthcare investor and just kind of a really big picture thinker and I think was sharing his views on kind of the economy and healthcare and trends and everything else with Hugo. And Hugo said, you know what, stop talking. Why don't we instead do it uh, all together on Tuesday for the podcast, which is why we're here. So Tom, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Sure. Sure. Cool. So Hugo, take it away. Yeah, sure. So I, I want to start with just like the most kind of basic question, but maybe from the opposite tack, which is people love to complain about our healthcare system, how screwed up it is, everything that's wrong with it. But what's actually good about it, and what are the things that in any kind of reform or in any kind of like digital disruption, whatever, that we want to preserve? Um, yeah, I, I guess for, for you know, healthcare generally, I mean, like you, there's lots and lots of examples of, um, you know, great innovations that save lives and, you know, sort of, you know, preserve families, you know, in the, in the way that like something like um, uh, standard of care for heart attack in 1974, my father had one. You know, it was bed rest. <laughs> you know, now, you, <laughs> now you get now you get uh, stents and uh, cholesterol lowering medications, and then, I mean, and then the vaccine obviously was just a remarkable uh, you know tool, and it's probably going to lead to a whole bunch of other tools. So, if, if in fact, can I, let me take a slightly more controversial take on that. Okay, which is, I would argue our health care system is outstanding. Right. Okay. So, yes, is the economic model inefficient, broken, out of sync with the rest of the world? Yes. Should we have some sort of Medicare for all? I do believe so. Although, of course, you know, I would like an opt out like most people who can choose to opt out and afford to. Um, but overall, if you think about it, like lifespans are I know that it went down a little bit because of COVID, but overall are longer than ever. There's more innovations happening all the time. People are living healthier, longer lives, better lives. And that's the result of the healthcare system that we have. So yes, it, do, do the three of us have better access to healthcare than someone who has insurance? Absolutely. But there aren't that many people left in this country who don't have any kind of insurance. And yeah, the, the cost part, part of the equation is still a problem. But overall, if the question is, does the average American get pretty high quality healthcare? I mean, Tom, you know more better than I do, but I think the answer would be yes. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think, I think going back to your first issue, the, the affordability part, and then if you look at you know, the U.S. medical economy as a thing, half over half the dollars are, you know, federally sourced, tax sourced. You've got, uh, you know, 20, 25 percent of the total federal budget. You've got, you know, what had been in 1970, you know, 6 percent of 
employees. You know, now it's, it's like 18 million people in the U.S. medical con. And what are the, you know, yes, they're producing a great good and in, in, uh, in terms of the service that we all get, you know, that have access to it. But at the same time, there's an affordability issue here. And, th and the reason I'm here today is because listening to your podcast in the last couple of weeks, th this issue, you know, it's like, how do we replace the labor piece is kind well, of, we'll do, okay, so why don't, you, why don't you dive right into that? What do you mean the labor piece? What are you talking about? So healthcare has been really good at essentially avoiding a lot of the tech innovations that have produced a lot of productivity and like the cell phone in your hand, for example, or the car that you drive or like any number of places where things have gotten better, faster, cheaper. Healthcare is actually persistently inflates higher than the amount of, of goods and services delivered takes more and more people, takes more and more of the budget. And there's really been very little inflection in that for, for a really long time. So as I'm looking and what's at, the main reason for that? Like, what, how do you, what do you, what do you well, point to? I mean, it's complicated, right? So, <laughs> so there isn't one. So I, Nobody I knows. mean, like, Nobody so knows. here's a good example of how complicated it is. There, there's a, there's something called ICD-9. It's a, a classification system for, if you go to the doctor, it's coded in a particular way. It's a five digit code. Okay. It used to be ICD-9 had like, I think it was like 14, 15,000 different codes. Now they moved to ICD-10. It's like 50,000 codes that you could possibly be something. One of the best ones is like, you are struck by a chicken sequela. <laughs> Wait, struck by a chicken? Like physically or more like salmonella? No, hit by a chicken. Oh, that does happen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's happened to Bradley many but times. But I mean, like that kind of that kind of level of detail is like absurd. Like, why do we need that? But that's why I never go back to Staten Island. Um, but Bradley, let's start, let's let's well, let's let's combine this with your thesis of, yeah. of like of like healthcare is is actually outstanding and great. Um, so why is there like, like okay? So you're a big advocate of like digital health and mm -hmm. telemedicine, all this stuff, and and the promise there is that it's going to cut through a lot of this yeah. and going to break down this kind of like huge hierarchy, these massive hospitals, this enormous. It, it will. It's a little like universal basic income, right? Which is all of these things can have a really meaningful benefit, assuming that you're then willing to make cuts on the other side to be commensurate with it, right? So like. You know, everyone on the left loves universal basic income, but you say, okay, well, now we're going to cut. We don't need as many government programs. We don't need as much taxation. We don't need as many government workers. And then, no, 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 we can't touch or cut anything. We just have to add more to it. You know, it's the same thing here, right? So, digital health will enable us to do healthcare a lot more efficiently, which should bring down some of the cost basis, but only if we then make cuts, right? So, like uh, Tom and I were talking last night, I'd written a piece a couple of years ago. And, Fast Company with Quincy and my colleague. That was a little fantastical, but it was basically making the point to say, could we get to a point where we don't actually need hospitals, right? Because hospitals are these massive centers of operating expenses, capital expenses. Spread of disease. Spread of <laughs> disease. Yeah, there's a lot that's bad about hospitals. And maybe get to a point where it's all sort of individual surgery center type places, and most stuff is taking place in the metaverse or online in some way. Um, but you ha it, the only way to then reduce the cost structure of the medical system through get technologies, you gotta get rid of shit, right? And so Tom, how, how likely is it that the system will be willing to change itself? Well, that's, that's, why, that's why I wanna hear you talk about it. Cause it's like, there's, I think the, the momentum and the infrastructure and the complication make it an, almost an impossible for any individual perspective or vantage point to really untangle it. Like it, there's going to be some component of I think consumerism, like people making choices or being allowed to make choices that they you know 
are only now getting to do because of telemedicine, because mm -hmm. of those access points are much easier to get to. But, you know, if you look at like a simple example of, well, how do these, how, how does Medicare decide to what to pay for things? And the American Medical Association has a list of all the things a doctor could do to you. They assign it a relative value unit, an RVU, mm -hmm. and they, they sort of goose the list here, take it away from there. So they're, the doctors themselves are de deciding what. Right. This, but, then, but then they give that to Medicare. Medicare says, well, each unit's worth X dollars. Right. So, I mean, ultimately, it seems like the, the people providing reimbursement, whether it's Medicare or the insurers, have to be willing to say, which I'm sure insurers would be more than happy to, look, this process should now only cost X because telemedicine is available here and works, not Y. We're only reimbursing X, so if you insist on going to a hospital, doing this in person and everything else, and the cost is 4X, you know, you're only getting 1X back and the rest of it's on you. If that were the case, people would adapt. Right. How did the urgent care model come through the pandemic? So that was like a a thing that existed obviously before the pandemic, but it became kind of a big part of people's lives because it was like a yeah, real tested. yeah, getting tested and dealing with all that. Is that did that hold up? Did it show that it's like like a really viable sort of piece of the healthcare system, or did it all just fall apart like everything else? Uh, well, I mean, there were certainly a lot of them, and a lot of them competing for. I mean, I think in the pandemic, I don't know that the models were that strong or durable. There right. was certainly a, a huge amount of capacity in the cities and. And elsewhere, and there's different models that were layered on top of that. Somebody like a, an in, a integrated system like Hospital Corporation of America, HCA, they've built their own, you know, big, massive system. But they're using that as a spoken hub, like intake. If I get you for like a routine visit, or CVS is using it, if I get you for a routine visit, there's, I'm either going to sell you a script on the back end of CVS, or I'm going to get you into the hospital. Yeah, they tried case. to send me. I remember I went in. I guess I can't remember. It wasn't COVID, but I had something, and I went to a, a, a some kind of bronchial thing that wasn't COVID, and I went to a urgent care place, and they like tried to send me to a doctor like in some part of Brooklyn I'd never been to, and I was like, what? What? That must have been very scary for you. Well, I, no, I didn't go. I mean, I, I of course but, not. <laughs> But I was like, I was like, oh, I realized what was happening here. They were just trying but on, to. On the flip side, though, I would say, you know, given how clumsy I am, I was cutting uh, ginger. I was just going to ask you about your thumb. Ago, yeah, yeah. Cut off the tip of my thumb. Tried to sort of. So I, I did. I kind of handled it in house. You were very it, stoic about it. I remember asking you about it. You looked bad, but you were like it very was very bloody, uh, <laughs> like a crime scene. But then, like three days later, I was like, you know what? I should probably get this checked out because I'm missing literally the tip of my thumb, and maybe I need stitches or whatever else. Um, and I went walked to the urgent care a couple blocks away, waited ten minutes, saw somebody. Turns out. I did what you needed to do, so there wasn't much else to do. So um, they didn't have to stitch it up or no, anything? No, no, I walked out. But I thought that was a pretty efficient, good use of the system, right? I didn't have to make an appointment. And it cost you nothing, weeks. like 10 bucks or something? And like, Yeah, whatever whatever the copay was. Okay. It wasn't terrible. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It seems to me that in the same way that the, the telemedicine value proposition, so for example, therapy, right? I don't know that I know anyone that still physically every week goes to see their therapist. And that, mm -hmm. I would argue, is just an advance in the system. It has created more productivity in the system because you and I talking about this this morning or last night. Like, when I used to go to the Upper West Side, even if the session was 45, 50 minutes, it was an hour and a half at least because I had to schlep up there, 
And then I had to sort of do the session and then schlep back. And sometimes everything went well, but sometimes it didn't. So, like, we've introduced a lot more productivity gains into the American therapy system by virtue of telemedicine. I, I think there's a world where urgent care performs the same thing. But Well, let me ask you one question about the therapy thing, because obviously you're, you're right, and, and everybody I know does the same thing. But... Um, is it is it different? Is it is the therapy just the same? Do you go occasionally for like no. a refresher, or you go I, up I, there? I don't. Um, now look, I have to do mine. I think I've said this podcast before. I, I have to do mine on the phone and not Zoom. I'm not allowed to do Zoom because I end up doing other work. Um, so my therapist has kind of banned me from doing Zoom. So I do. How, how, wait, how does it work to not do other work just on the phone versus? Because Zoom? what I do is I put in my AirPods. Okay. And I put the phone away. So I make the call and then I kind of leave it, try to leave it like 10 feet from where I am. Wow. So that I could then focus on the <laughs> session, right? It's the ass being me. Good luck. Um, so anyway, but, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that the point is, I don't know if technology is the sole savior of the healthcare system, but it seems to me that just like the only real long-term solution for climate change is not going to be change, meaningful changes in human behavior because we can't get, ever get our shit together to do that. It's going to be inventing things that can take enough carbon out of the atmosphere one way or another um, to bring down the temperature, right? I, you know, I kind of think healthcare is the same way. What, do you well, what you're describing on the more efficient use of the labor pool yeah. you know, is essentially what, like that's been the big innovation in healthcare for years is what, you know, hospital care is really expensive because employees in hospitals, trained nurses, high licensed uh, individuals getting 35, 40, 50 bucks an hour. And very strong unions. And good unions, sure. And you know, what was the big innovation? Well, why don't we discharge the patient to home? Like lower, low, lower cost sites of care. All that really means that you have a home health aide, you know, who's 15, 16 bucks an hour, 12 back, you know, back in the day. Like that's what you're doing. You're trading expensive labor for cheap that's labor. That's not bad, is it? I mean, it's, I mean, telemedicine is going to make that labor pool more efficient, but I think ultimately healthcare is delivered by people. We currently have 18 million of them employed in the industry. Uh, the demand, you know, is continuing to ratchet up and we've, we're short right now, I think, based on like the COVID recovery and where we are relative to trend, we're probably short about 700, 800,000 healthcare workers. How, how much of that could be solved by having better immigration policies? Oh, I think, well, I mean, listen, you're not, you're not going to make the population grow any faster from here. Right. Know, I mean, if you did, you know, you're going to It would take a while. <laughs> it would take a while to turn them into nurses and doctors. Um, but, but is, yeah. there, is there, does the supply exist overseas and it's just a question of bringing them there's in a, or does it just not exist at all? There's, there's a few firms that do this specifically for nurses like uh, from the Philippines for temporary uh, mm-hmm. assignments here in the United States or other, you know, English speaking, highly trained workforces. Like I think there's a lot of, uh, I, I think one, one of the Central American countries has a lot of dental uh, capacity. So there's a lot of remote, you know, type dental care that gets done there. Um, anyway, but yeah, I, I, I don't, th- I don't think the exter- the ex-U.S. population uh, of labor force right. is going to be big enough. Well, then to I solve guess the to the question I've always wondered about, which is, isn't it bad that healthcare keeps becoming a bigger and bigger part of our GDP? I think so. I mean, if you if you look at, I mean, and again, the reason this this came up for me was like, I was looking at uh, from an investment point of view, I'm trying to find longs and shorts in healthcare. One of the things that's been very defining about the stock market lately has been, well, was the Fed going to pivot to this lower rate? Are we going to solve this inflation problem? And I found some papers on demographics that said, like, we're actually not. Like, this is, we're in a period where the dependency ratio of adults, uh, working adults versus old people and young people, we're in a, a period where it typically lends itself to high inflation. The last time we were here was sort of the 70s and 80s. 
like that it was coincident with Volcker, right? Raising rates and, and killing inflation back then, but it was actually a natural phenomenon that was happening because of the demographics of the population. So it wasn't the Vietnam War, the oil. Or yeah, I mean, people assign things, but I mean that the, that's what this paper would say, and that we're in this period of rising inflation for some time to come. If that's true, I've got 1.2 trillion, you know, federal outlays for healthcare. It inflates faster. Consumption continually goes up, and these people that run it aren't very good at. Well, and there's Adopting no new, digital leverage. I mean, the whole healthcare, look, unless we are developing services and technologies that we're selling to people in other countries, it seems like the whole healthcare system is not a net positive gain. It's just a wealth transfer, right? Basically, you're saying, okay, taxpayers or ratepayers for insurance are effectively going to spend more and more money to cover the rising cost of providing all of these services, which actually are generally pretty good services that keep people alive. But it's not like, I never understand why, healthcare is our big industry. Like, healthcare is not creating any growth, right? It's just left pocket, right pocket. I mean, Except where's you, the growth? Well, if you preserve, like, if you preserve that heart attack victim to continue to earn, right? Like, you're not- Right, or you make it so that you don't, like, spend three days in bed with an infected thumb from not getting it looked at, right? So that's a that's a. This was my getting rid of the TSA argument from last week. <laughs> Wait, how does it how does it uh, productivity come that we spend vast amount? Right now, we get to the airport an hour earlier than we need to because of the TSA. Right, and it sucks massive amounts of productivity out of the economy. So, so what would we get rid of right away if we could? If you could, like Bradley likes to use this magic wand uh, sort of model where we just hand a magic <laughs> wand to the guest. Tom Tobin solved the world. So yeah. So Tom, if you're if you're if you had one thing that you could be like, okay, we're changing this about the American healthcare system, what would it be? I think you get rid of insurance companies. I think I think ultimately what you do is the federal government should underwrite everybody. Okay. And you should have uh, you know a national healthcare index. So I'm. 53 years old, I have this, you know, demographic, this ability to pay, and my health insurance is X dollar, right? But everybody's in the pool. And, and we organize around either, you know, supporting people who can't pay and asking people to pay more that can. But ultimately, you get big science out of that, and you get rid of all, all of the nonsense that happens between, at the state level, between Blue Cross Blue Shield and the hospital associations. So is that like the national health system in the UK? Is that the... I don't, I, uh, I don't know as much about the U cases. I think they're more like, uh, like the U.S. system is now, except they just pay all the bills and they have to, they have to make all those hard choices. And so, like, there was a moment where we had uh, a lot of momentum towards what you're talking about, right? Towards the Medicare for All system. It felt like it started with Bernie Sanders and the far left, but kind of moved towards the center, at least on the sort of Democratic side of no, the aisle. No, what I'm saying is not Medicare for all. Like, well, but isn't some system that wipes out the insurance companies therefore requires some, it has to be replaced with something, right? Yeah, it's, it's, the insurance companies will pick up that premium, but they're not going to be the ones doing the underwriting. It's not, you're no longer going to have CMS. So they still do exist. They still do exist, but they, you get rid of the underwriting process. You get rid of Medicare sort of with 15 to 50,000 codes getting hit by chicken stuff. And you get rid of Plague. all of the small decision making, right? The individual picky stuff that sort of makes it all so tangled and complicated. Right. You just unleash right. individual. But, but e either way, we were making it felt like societal progress towards some kind of revamping of the system, right? And then I guess because of COVID, 
that whole conversation seems to have ceased completely. Do we get back to a world where that starts to be relevant again, or did COVID just change everything? No, I, I think it's, I would, I would say it's more relevant, right? Because what, what, the, what the feds did is they said, hey, you can't disenroll anybody from Medicaid during the public health emergency. Um, there was a lot of effort. Because the insurance companies weren't paying anything, they had excess money to spend. There was a lot of activity to support equivalent payment for telemedicine, so the doctors would do it. So the doctors mm-hmm. won't do anything unless they get paid, yep. you know, and, and to keep that at parity. And then a lot of the rules about can somebody in California practice in New York across, across state lines and that kind of thing. That I think there's a lot of loosening of the... So, you're, I see. so, so in your so I think view, it was very important. COVID didn't stop the conversation. It just evolved it in different ways. It actually, in some ways... And behavioral health became incredibly yeah. like center point of, right. of a lot of, a and lot of efforts. And ultimately, it's the kinds of reforms that we would need to have a more efficient yeah, like a whole Yeah, like a whole person healthy attitude. We're going to support all that. I mean, now it's going to get complicated because cost trends going to re-accelerate. Insurance companies going to get back up to their old their old tricks. Well, let's talk about doctors for a second. To what extent are they part of the problem? Like, are, do they make too much money? Are there not enough of them? What's the what's the where do doctors fit into the healthcare system's problems and its opportunities? I mean, I've followed the healthcare industry from a public equity point of view for a long time, and as much I, I, I mean, doctors do a great service. I know lots of doctors; they're great people. There, there's but, but what's the but? The big everything. Yeah, there's, everybody's got a big but. The, <laughs> the the problem really is this economic incentive that's sort of obscured is behind the veil. Like, oh, I don't want to interfere with your relationship with your doctor. Or, you know, nobody's gonna like the whole arguments against and for like a national health insurance system really come down to uh, you know just allowing that patient doctor relationship to persist. Right. The bottom line is that you know the average length of a visit is. A, couple minutes, like four, five, eight minutes, like they get paid on the minute basis. Are they really taking care of you? Are they really offering you like a full service? Like if you ask them like the door handle issue, like, oh, one more thing, doc, I have this rash, like, like that kind of <laughs> that kind so of stuff. So you think that's all bullshit? Is that what you're saying? I, I think I think we've pushed them into a corner of time management and 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 maximizing their revenue on a per unit basis, you know, that it has sort of corrupted the whole system like by degrees over a very long period of time. Right. Brother, let me ask you, you were talking about the, the um, Department of Homeland Security and all that and yeah. um, the need to end it. Um, yeah, the, I, which I don't actually, I'm just making the point right. of we, we have lots of things in society that we just take for granted though it has to be this way um, when I'm not sure that's true. Right. So these two pillars of kind of the American healthcare establishment, uh, the FDA and the CDC, both just kind of disgraced themselves more or less during COVID. Like nobody trusts so. them. Yeah, I do think so. There's a. I mean, do you not think so? No, I th- and I don't think the FDA. I would say I thought the FDA actually did generally a reasonably good job. I mean, I think that we won, at least from my perspective, it was one of the better run, less politicized agencies in the Trump administration than pretty just mm-hmm. about any of the others, right? Okay. Like it wasn't as much of a debacle as everything fucking else that that guy did, right? Number one, number two. <laughs> Look, in a very short period of time, the system as a whole, which, by the way, includes drug companies that we always complain that make too much money, have too many resources, all of that. But that same system and that same infrastructure is what enabled the rapid creation of vaccines. So I would say the government, the the pharmaceutical industry, 
the FDA. I think all did a really good job in this country when it came to COVID. The CDC, you know, I understand that, but I guess the, if, if we didn't live in a world where every single thing was totally politicized, um, would we feel that way? Or is it just because mm -hmm. we now trend towards conflict at all costs? So as a result, Fauci is either a hero or a villain as opposed to like, you know, a, a smart, a very smart man with a big ego who likes attention, but also was trying to convey the best information they had at that point. Right. And, and, and the public health emergency in, in general, like public health people are an impossible scenario because their only tool is to scare people to get them to do stuff that they think will work, but they can't actually do the experiment and figure it out. They don't have, they, they know, they take the specific, oh, people seem to be spreading this in person, let's stop everybody from being in person. That's our tool, oh, now we have to scare the crap out of everybody and make that happen. And so there's an element of, like I, I mean, I don't envy what they had to do, and there's an element of, maybe it persisted too long and they took too many steps and the whole mask debate and like all that stuff is just, it becomes, uh, you know, the best tool available. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have a public health agency there instead of not, right? So Tom, well, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, you, you're a healthcare guy, so obviously your perspective is gonna be late in this way. But if, if you look at society and say, what's not working, right? So you could take healthcare, but you could also take schools, climate, public safety, immigration, all kinds of other things. It, there's an argument that the thing we should not be wasting time on at the moment, maybe we kind of did as much as we could for a while with Obamacare, was is healthcare, right? And maybe the reality is, is it economically inefficient? Yes, but does it work better than most, like does it work better than our school system? I think so, significantly. By the way, if it didn't, we wouldn't have such a shortage of doctors. I, I think that's all true. I think the, the problem will come, right? Interest rates are gonna go up. If we're in this persistently higher inflation environment, $28 trillion in debt, 1%, 280 billion, that's, that's a lot of money that's gonna crowd out spending on healthcare that, again, the folks that, the folks at the center of all that decision-making and the centralization of those decisions, right? You've got Medicare, Medicaid, and-, and Yeah, but you're, you just talked about debt payment and debt service as sort of still a function of like that we're actually attempting to at some point repay this, right? I mean, isn't the argument really we're never going to repay the debt. All we're paying is the interest payment, but the interest payment effectively is what created the leverage to release trillions of dollars in society to deal with COVID or deal with whatever problem it is. In a weird way, if we stop even pretending that we're ever going to pay it back, $280 billion for the amount of money that, that it produces, pretty good deal. Yeah, and I guess we could take it to 50 billion, or 50 trillion. Right? Well, but the I point is not that we're gonna pay we it back will. or not, is that we are paying the interest on it and the interest rate is going up. So it, it's, it's getting more interest. expensive. Yeah. But, but let, let's, let's uh, we're sort of getting to the end of our, of our, uh, of our session here, and I wanna just ask uh, two, one non-health related question, but also just one semi-health related question, which is about the Buffalo Bills player, Damar Hamlin, who, um, uh, had this heart attack on the field last week, yep. and then he uh, made this seemingly miraculous recovery after it looked pretty dire yep. for a couple of days there. Um, so I just have a question. You guys are not like rabid football fans, but you both watch football and mm -hmm. enjoy it. Is there anything that makes it hard for you to watch the game? I mean, it, this guy had a heart attack, which is a, a very unusual event, but what commonly happens, like if DeMar Hamlin had gotten his 
knees blown out and it ended his career on that play, but had not had art. Like literally nobody would be talking about it. We never hear his name again. No. So look, I mean, this is the, for a couple of years, I actually did watch a lot less football. Because of the, because well, of concussion because stuff? because I or? felt like, yeah, I felt like one, the NFL are like, they're just leashed a bunch of assholes. Two, I didn't like the, the Kaepernick <laughs> thing. Uh, if he wants to kneel in the anthem, I don't fucking kneel. Who cares? Um, but, but third is, what I said to myself is every single play, these guys are literally killing themselves, right? They are literally inducing a little more brain damage. And so for a while, I said, well, the moral thing to do would be not to participate in this. And I don't know if it's laziness or what, but... You got sucked back in? You know, I just sort of made the decision that, at least at the NFL level, these are adults who are choosing to do this. You sometimes see someone like an Andrew Luck saying, you know what, I'm not going to play anymore because I don't want to further imperil my health. And if they're willing to make this decision and take this risk of having, you know, CTE or that their knees don't work when they're 45 or whatever else, part of me is thinking, like, why am I the person that has to sort of wage the holy war to stop them? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't really watch that much football anymore. I mean, I, partly for that reason, partly that I just I don't enjoy the game as much. Maybe I'm being a little Pollyanna-ish. Um, it's just I don't I don't find it as compelling. And then in addition to CTE and all the other sort of downside effects that that's happened. Not maybe I'm not I'm taking some weird moral high ground, but it's a lot of other things I want to do to, with my day other than tune into football every like every other day. keep like, up on a your lot healthcare investing research. <laughs> yeah. <dude. laughs> Although can I, can I ask you one question? Yeah. So so if you were going to run this campaign on this, like if we're going to have if we're going to replace a doctor with like chat GBT, mm-hmm. right? Is that a campaign you can run and win? Yeah, ultimately, yes. It's, Wait, who it, would you run it against? What are you talking about? Well, I just, I'm, I'm wondering if a medical society will ever allow that kind yeah, of thing to I happen. I think so, because think, think about incentives. the telemedicine campaigns that we have been involved in so far. Every single one of them effectively is an effort to increase efficiency, increase digitization, um, and replace human behavior with technological activity, right? And chatbot GPT is just another evolution of seeing patients online, allowing, you know, like during COVID at least, a lot of fundamental reforms, you talked about them a couple minutes ago, that, that had to happen, did happen, right? Uh, people, doctors in California could all of a sudden see patients in New York and vice versa and all that. And so, look, as someone who has been involved in a bunch of public policy telemedicine campaigns, I have not found the medical society overall to be as nearly as strong of an entrenched interest um, as a lot of other sectors. And I think that telemedicine is one of those few issues that I've at least seen where both parties sort of have their own reasons for liking it, and they're slightly different reasons, but they both do like it. I've talked to really conservative lawmakers who really like it. I've talked to really liberal lawmakers who like it. And so I actually think, you know, if you're asking me, what are the sectors where you can force the most change? Uh, I think so far healthcare has been pretty good. Hmm. Well, there was there was a big campaign years ago to reduce the number of pap smears that women get, you know, from annually to, you know, every I think it's every three years for hmm. normal. Yep. That's very destructive to the patient visits, you know, at OBGYN, and they fought it. Like, yeah. There was there was a lot of pushback from those societies to let, and that took years, you yeah. know, for that to to finally come around. So. Yeah, I mean, I think look ultimately, but but ultimately, if if you believe that technology always wins, which I guess what I believe, um, then I think long term, all of these things will happen. But yeah, I mean, this is always the problem 
this is the basic problem of automation, right? Which is every time in history that we have had a massive automated switch, uh, horses to cars or whatever it is, in the long haul, it's been extremely good. It's created tremendous amounts of more jobs, innovation, opportunity, everything else. But in the short haul, um, you know, the the, the, the buggy stable master or whatever it is, yeah, you know, kind of gets left behind. So of course, those people are going to fight for their livelihoods, just like we see people, coal miners fighting for their livelihoods, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, over the arc of time, it does change. All right, brother, you, this is our final topic unrelated to health, although okay. maybe you can figure out some overlap. Um, uh, you sent me that article from The Atlantic uh, last week about tipping. Oh, yeah. Um, sort of this kind of, it, I, I couldn't actually understand what the article was really about. I just said it, it's really weird now, tipping, because of... of um, we tip more, um, uh, and we and we tip it for things that we didn't used to tip on, and everybody feels this kind of anxiety about what's the right amount now. Um, you had a you had a theory about it that you wanted to. You well, wanted to just I mean, I, I guess the way I see, it, and again, I, I recognize that because I have a lot of discretionary income, the way that I see these issues is probably not consistent with most people. However, it seems to me that tipping is a wealth transfer, right? Tipping is saying people who have enough money to go out for dinner in the first place are spending a little more of that money to provide the people who are serving them with more income and more opportunity. You know, I see that as a really good thing. So, like, the article was bitching about, you know, obviously the writer is really fucking cheap, whoever he is. And, like, you know, the article's like, oh, I have the coffee now. It's embarrassing if I don't hit 25%, if I only hit 15%. So I try to contort my fingers. And it's sort of like, look, tip what you want to tip. you got to live with yourself one way or the other. But, but ultimately, money is flowing from people who have excess amounts of it to people who need it. Look, he raised But when you see like a 30% tip thing, you know, when you get the I, options? I tip 30% anyway, but like- You, you do. I'll, I'll give you the one example he gave that I did, didn't resonate, which was at the airport, like, you know, at the when you're doing like you're buying a, a power bar or something like that, the right. self-checkout kiosk. Right, tip, you, like, you who, don't tip who, there? Who am I tipping? What, what did right. you do? But but to me, like, are there a few... But that's just a wealth transfer. So even though well, they didn't I'll do anything, you not, just give them some money, right? Well, but not to OTG, the company that does all of this. Oh, you, oh, you, think, money oh, you think they're just tipping, they're not giving that to the employees? There was no employees. It was all self-checkout. Oh, oh. So, look, yeah. I mean, That's amazing, tipping a machine. Right. So, but over... No, so, yeah, I'm not going to engage in a wealth transfer to a giant corporation, but... <laughs> Overall, it just seems to me that this is not, of all the problems we face, this was not one of them. Oh, no, clearly not. But um, but it's it's interesting just those things that, that, that you were describing, though. It does flip people out a little bit, right? Like this, this like... I mean, it, it would, you would never have thought to tip somebody thirty no, percent on like a on like a coffee purchase. But like it, it flips them out ago. because it, it forces them to have to confront something that's easier to ignore, right? I guess what some people would rather do is, you know, buy whatever they want to buy and not feel obligated to provide any more money for that service than than the actual cost of the item itself, and it pisses them off because now they have to choose between looking bad or spending more money. I think it's good to put people in that situation. What's your uh, theory of tipping, Tom? To close the episode, uh, yeah, I mean it's it's it's. Uh, I don't don't like, try to take a reason stand. You're I'm on, not you're on a podcast a with me, Bradley. No, I I think it's when it's somebody that I see every day or routinely, or um, I might be back like an airport tipping. I'll do it just out of a matter of course, like we were just in the airport. People don't like to tip. We were in Europe. The tipping is. I actually insulted somebody. I think <laughs> trying to hand them a little bit too much. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, somebody helped me out of a uh, a jam. Uh, but yeah, no tipping. 
I, I agree. I, I, I wouldn't go. I think you thought about this way too much. I mean, I, th- I think it's the 20 percent. That's the purpose of the podcast. I think oh, about sorry. Too much. Well, the, pur- the, the purpose of the podcast is to take all the shit that I obsess about that isn't that important and get it out uh, through this. <laughs> yeah, this is therapy. Okay. Yeah, exa- exactly. All the listeners don't know that effectively I should be paying you. Um, so anyway, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that that generally speaking, look, now, again, it gets back to the basic point. Would I rather have some like, universal basic income where all of a sudden people had enough money and we didn't need all these different ways to subsidize and workarounds and hacks and everything else? Yeah, I, I, I would. But up, up until and when we have that, um, you know, if, if I can spread the money around a little bit and help other people, why not? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I prefer it was embedded in the price, frankly. Right. Tom, thanks for joining us. Bradley, I'll see you next yep. week. See you guys. Thanks.